0: Michael Ibar is waiting anxiously outside of a courtroom in Broward County, Florida, facing emotions he's experienced before. In a room nearby, a jury is locked away, trying to decide if Michael's brother, Pablo Ibar, is a murderer or a man wrongly accused.
1: It just would be amazing to have my brother back. I lost my mother, and in a way, I lost my brother when I was very young. I have a a picture of my mother and my brother from that time, right before he got arrested. Um, next to my bed, so it'd be like getting half of your family back, you know.
0: This is, very possibly, Pablo Ibar's final chance to win his freedom. It's been almost a quarter century since that August day in 1994 when he was charged with murdering Butch Casey, Sharon Anderson, and Marie Rogers. Now, for a third time, he waits for 12 strangers to decide his fate and three families wait to find out if they will, finally, see justice served. It's Saturday morning and the jury files into the courtroom. The fifth trial in the extraordinary Casey's Nickelodeon murder case is about to come to an end. From the South Florida Sun Sentinel and Wondery, This is a special episode of Felonious Florida, the podcast that leads you into the dark side of the Sunshine State. I'm your host, Emma-Kate Austin, along with reporter Rafael Omeda. The Casey's Nickelodeon Murders is the story that launched this show in early 2018. If you haven't listened to episodes one through four, we suggest you go back and catch up. Start with the episode titled The Executions, The update you're about to hear will make a lot more sense. The Casey's Nickelodeon murder case has been remarkable since the moment a sheriff's deputy discovered the bloody crime scene in July 1994. Butch Casey, whose real name was Kazimir Sukarski, was beaten and shot to death on his dining room floor. Next to him lay the bodies of Sharon Anderson and Marie Rogers, two 25-year-old women he met at his nightclub, Casey's Nickelodeon. Within hours of the gruesome discovery came explosive evidence, a now-famous 22-minute video recorded by a surveillance camera mounted in a high corner of Butch's house. The camera recorded two intruders bursting through a back door with their faces covered to conceal their identities. It recorded them terrorizing Butch, Sharon, and Marie. It recorded them as they put bullets into the backs of all three. And then, it recorded what should have been a moment that made this an open and shut case. With the only witnesses dead, and unaware of the camera aimed directly at him, one of the intruders removed a t-shirt that had been covering his head and exposed his face to the world. But although the video led police to Pablo Ibar and eventually his friend, Seth Penalver, It was the T-shirt that the unwitting intruder removed from his head that would become the key to the case. That and the advances in DNA technology that exposed Secrets' held for 25 years in the fibers of the blue shirt found outside Bush Casey's front door. And last week, that's what prosecutor Chuck Morton told the jury in Pablo Ibar's murder trial.
2: You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. This case has been a part of this court system since 1994. A lot of things have changed since then. You see it right here in the courtroom. The technology particularly is different. We see and we know of the changes technologically that have occurred in our lives. In photography for example, which was a big part of this case. we've seen, uh, the changes that have been made with respect to forensic science. You heard all of that testimony, particularly as it relates to DNA. So, here we are, back again. How did we get here? The more things change, the more they stay the same.
0: Forensic evidence has eluded the prosecution at every step in this sprawling case. There was none during that first trial in 1997 when Pablo and Seth were tried together as co defendants. That trial ended with a hung jury. There was no physical evidence again two years later when Seth was back on trial. After that jury found him guilty of the murders, the Florida Supreme Court decided that the evidence against him was so thin so circumstantial that it threw out the conviction and ordered a new trial. Three years later, Seth's team presented a jury with new information it had discovered, trying to convince them that Seth wasn't a killer. For Seth, waiting during deliberations seemed like an eternity.
3: It was, uh, it was 10 days, 11 days. I think that's the longest in Florida history, uh, longest in U.S. history for a capital case for a jury to be out. I remember when they were reading the verdict. When they said count one, not guilty, you know, the first thing I'm thinking, okay, we have lesser charges. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm not guilty of first degree murder. But then when they went to count two, they said not guilty. And then my my legal sense kicked in and I said, hold on. And then they say, count three, not guilty. And then I said, that's murder, murder, murder. All three counts. And then I just broke down from right there. I didn't hear anything else. After 22 years, Seth was free. It was amazing. I mean, I was like, I don't know, living like on a high out of this world. I couldn't go to when I got out. I couldn't go to sleep for three days. I said in 1997, I said, no, 95. I said, God willing, one day, if I ever get found not guilty, the first place I want to go is I want to go to uh, the closest church and I want to get down on my knees and pray at that church. I don't care what time it is. And then I want to go to the beach and put my back on a palm tree. So I got out at 3 o'clock in the morning, and the nearest church was at, uh, I think it was Ninth Avenue, Davy Boulevard, if you head a little bit south. It was a Catholic church. I didn't, I didn't care if it was Catholic, Baptist, Pentecost, Jehovah Witness. I was just, I it was like 40 degrees out. I was freezing. You know, it, I wasn't freezing, but uh, my friend that was with me, she was cold, and I just, I was out there for like 20 minutes on my hands and knees, and and I was just praying. Then uh, I stopped by Dunkin' Donuts to get some coffee. Then I went to... Um, the beach on commercial and A1A where the pier is. And uh, I was going to go down there by the water. At first it was pitch dark, but then I started hearing the roaring of the ocean. And, you know, I hadn't been around something like that in almost 20 years, and I was scared. I said, I didn't come this far to let the ocean swallow me up. (laughs) So I stayed away from the water and went and put my butt butt up against a tree. And I just enjoyed it for about an hour.
0: Pablo Ibar has faced a tougher challenge since the hung jury in 1997. Primarily, prosecutors allege that it is his face that could be seen on the video footage during the murder. But the image on the video is grainy, and Pablo's lawyers and supporters have insisted it's not him. It's the most important piece of evidence until now, and the most controversial. Deb Bowie is the sister of one of the murder victims, Sharon
4: Anderson. I've taken issue for years with the with, uh, description of the tape as grainy, as though you can't make out who's who. I can look at that tape and tell you who my sister is, so how can anyone who knows Pablo Ibar look at that and say that that's not him? So, yes, yeah, it's angering. I can't tell you how many people who know me, who have known me for all these years, who, of course, will ask, and they will always say to me, how can it be that the entire homicide was put on tape and you guys still don't have any justice? It's very frustrating to explain that to people because even with all of your <laughs> legal exposure, because I feel like I'm sort of a street attorney at this point, even with everything that I understand about the case, it is maddening to watch it and watch someone with nothing on his face shoot and kill your sister and have that piece of very strong evidence be questioned. There are people who kill and rob in Seven Eleven videos. Whose trials
0: don't take this off. Evidence against Pablo was strong enough to convince a second jury that it was indeed his face on the video. He was convicted and sentenced to death. But for the second time in the Casey's Nickelodeon murder case, the Florida Supreme Court stepped in and threw out the conviction. This time, they ruled that Pablo hadn't received an adequate defense from his lawyer, who was ill during the trial. Pablo would face his third jury, but this time, a tactic used by his defense years earlier, would come back to haunt him. With nothing to lose before his trial in 2010, Pablo Ibar's team took a gamble. They sent the blue t-shirt found at the crime scene to a forensics lab in Virginia. They were hoping to find DNA on the shirt that could pin the murders on another potential suspect. But the results were negative, and the t-shirt went into storage. Since then, a new prosecutor, William Sinclair, has been working to convict Pablo, and he had a thought about the t-shirt. Pablo had it tested for another suspect's DNA. But had the lab ever tested the t-shirt against Pablo's own DNA? It had not. Sinclair ordered the test. And this time, the news was bad for Pablo. The results of the new test showed that Pablo was a major contributor to the partially recovered DNA. The probability that it was a different Caucasian man was 1 in 11 million. The odds shrank to about 1 in 35 million among Hispanic men. The momentum shifted from the defense to the prosecution. Suddenly, the controversial, grainy video wasn't the most important piece of evidence against Pablo Ibar. Jury selection began October 1, 2018, and by Thanksgiving, it was complete. The courtroom is packed on the opening day of the trial. Ibar's wife, brother, and father are joined by other family members. With them is a delegation of senators from Spain, where Ibar has become a celebrity among opponents of the death penalty. One senator, Rosa Vindel of Madrid, says, quote, We are not here to say he is innocent. We are here as opponents of the death penalty. We don't want his life to be at risk. We want a fair trial. The group from Spain has raised more than $1 million for Pablo's current defense. On the other side of the courtroom is a single row of just four people. Butch Casey's daughter Alexis, who is now 35 years old, Marie Rogers' mother Margaret and brother Kareem, and a representative from the Victim's Advocate Office, which helps family members understand the legal process during murder trials. Deb Bowie, Sharon's sister, sat through all of the previous trials, but now lives in Central Florida with her children and isn't at the trial. Their mother, Barbara Jones, died in 2017. Prosecutor William Sinclair opens the case against Pablo by highlighting his newest weapon, the DNA. Pablo's DNA was on the t shirt, Sinclair tells the jury. So is the DNA of Sharon Anderson, one of the murder victims. This proves it, Sinclair says. Ibar is one of the killers. The DNA evidence on the t shirt is damaging for Pablo, and his lawyers aren't hiding it at his trial. It's true, his attorney Kevin Kulick tells the jury. Pablo's DNA is on the shirt, and so is Sharon Anderson's. But he says there was someone else's DNA in the fibers, too. Unknown number one. That's what Kulik called him. The source of the DNA hasn't been identified, but Kulik tells the jury that DNA belongs to the real killer. Defense lawyers argue that the murder investigation has been tainted by misconduct almost from the start, and there's at least one person out there that the police knew about, but never pursued. He walked into the Broward Sheriff's office after the murders and claimed responsibility for taking Butch Casey's Mercedes from his house and driving it 70 miles north to Palm Beach County, where he set it on fire near the Florida Everglades. Seth Penalver says he discovered a notation of the alleged confession in police files while he was appealing his conviction on death row.
3: Two days after the murders. I, I wasn't even a suspect. Mr. Ibar wasn't even a suspect. Um, When you have a gentleman that walks into a Broward sheriff's office and this guy confesses and says, yeah, I I burnt the car. My boss told me to do it. How BSO does not arrest him immediately for grand theft auto possession of stolen property doesn't make sense. And why they don't call West Palm Beach sheriff's office and say, hey, we got the guy who blew the car up in your county. You arrest him. Then I'm not here. Mr. Ibar is not here. That could have been the murderer. But what happens? BSO lets the man go. Less than 24 hours later, he's dead.
0: The man's name was Johnny McGill. He was shot to death outside a Miami strip club the day after he gave his brief statement to a deputy.
3: He's in front of a club. They ask him to come out. They kill him cold blood. That's for me. A lot of answers aren't. A lot of questions don't get answered. Nobody wants to answer these questions. Whenever you let somebody go that confesses to the murder and he dies later, I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions here.
0: Prosecutors say that false confessions are not uncommon in high-profile murder cases. By the time the witness's statement came to light, investigators were already confident they had the right men in custody. The idea of Seth testifying in Pablo's current trial was a potential problem for both the prosecution and the defense. He was on the witness list for both sides, and his first appearance in the courtroom early in the trial caused waves. The first day of the trial is already dramatic. As the testimony draws to a close, Broward Circuit Judge Dennis Bailey calls the attorneys to the front of the courtroom and the jury is sent out. Judge Bailey tells the lawyers he had been observing the jury during the testimony of an early witness and noticed one of the jurors had fallen asleep. The sleepy juror has to go, Judge Bailey says, and the prosecutors and defense lawyers agree. Just hours into the trial, and one of the carefully chosen jurors has already been dismissed. On day two of the trial, the courtroom theatrics continue. As a police witness is testifying, the courtroom doors open, and a bald, stocky man with wire-framed glasses walks in and takes a seat in the second row, directly across from the families of the victims. It takes no time at all for court deputies to recognize Seth Penalver, and for the judge to immediately order him to leave the courtroom. The law is clear. Anyone who is a witness in a criminal case cannot watch the proceedings until after they are called to the stand, and Seth was a potential witness for both sides. He was not welcome in the courtroom. When prosecutors sat him down for a deposition in 2018, Seth declined to answer their questions, pleading his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. But when Judge Bailey ordered him out of the courtroom, Penalver was anything but silent.
3: Well, I was thinking that I could go in there and just and listen, you know, because I was supposed to th- start my trial and it took, and I found some evidence a week before my trial was going to begin and uh, it totally turned this case around. So me seeing everything that was, that was hidden and not revealed and lied about, you know, I, I wanted to come in and see, are they doing the same exact thing? But they wouldn't let me come in because I think they know that uh, the prosecution knows that I do have very valuable insight into this case because I lived and breathed it for 18 and a half years. And, you know, instead of buying cupcake cookies and honey buns, I was buying law books, you know, and I understand it. I understand the law and I, I just wanted to come in there and see for myself if it was, was going to be the same. And I just wanted to see it from the other side uh, because I was on the on his side, Mr. Ibar's side, seeing it. And I just wanted to see how they were operating this. I walked in. I sat down. Next thing you know, a deputy got up, made a big scene in front of the jury. He's like, hey, hey, you got to go. You got to go. I mean, these are professionals. They've been doing this a long time. That's a no-no. We know how to go sidebar. We know how to we know how to get the jury out. But again, it's the game within the game. You know, I got to believe that, geez, some of these bailiffs been here 30 plus years. They know not to cause a scene. If they tell everybody before trial not to cause a scene, why do they? And, you know they have pictures. You know they—they they had a picture of me outside of the door. If, you know if any bailiff sees me or any armed guard sees me, don't let me in. Like what? What did I do? Like I'm—I'm I'm innocent. I—I've never caused a problem in this courtroom. I never ran. I never threatened anybody. They don't want the jury to see the truth. They want to—you know—they don't want the jury to see me free because then what it does is make make people doubt, uh, doubt. The state's theory. So the the bailiff told me to go, and I mean, I know I know my rights. This is a public court. This is anybody from the public could come. I've been found not guilty. I wanted to stay in there, and I didn't want to leave. I wanted an explanation. Why am I being tossed out? Uh, So the judge asked the jury to leave. Um, The judge asked me to leave, and I asked him why. And the judge then told me, "You're on the defense. uh, You're on the state's witness list and the defense witness list, uh, and you're not allowed legal." Legally to be in the courtroom because you're a witness. I said, I I mean, I understand the legal, the legal, the legal block that was put up by the state. I understood that. But I still wanted to object for the record because uh, I believe I should be able to be in there. I believe it was a a, a tactic by the state. And I told that to the judge. I explained that to him. And he let me know that your, your, um, uh, your objection is noted for the record. And I did tell him, you know, I did make make a statement, you know, you guys don't want the jury to see the truth. You guys don't want to know that Mr. Chuck Morton framed me and hid evidence. And, you know, nobody wants the truth here. And he asked me to leave, and then I respectfully left.
0: The courtroom drama of the first two days is over, and the trial settles into day after day of gritty testimony. On day three of the trial, jurors finally see the grainy video footage that, until the DNA discovery, was the prosecution's most damaging evidence against Pablo. The brutal scene plays out in front of the court, including enhanced still images of the moment one of the intruders reveals his face to the camera. Later, an assistant medical examiner walks the jury through the horrifying, fatal injuries to Butch, Sharon, and Marie. Marie's mother, Margaret, looks straight down as autopsy photos of her slain daughter are displayed on an overhead projector. Butch's daughter, who was 10 at the time of the murders, takes in the testimony and images, betraying no emotion. Then, the DNA evidence is shown to the jury. Human Asir, an analyst at the Virginia lab that did the testing, explains the results that show Pablo's DNA on the T shirt. But Pablo's defense pushes back, suggesting that the results could have been tainted by cross contamination. Touch DNA is, after all, a new technology and the evidence being tested is decades old. The new DNA results are damning, but if the jury can be given a solid reason to question them, Pablo may be that much closer to freedom. The defense just needs to present the jury with reasonable doubt. Then the defense tries a tactic that Seth Penalver used during his retrial, the one that led to his acquittal. They go after the surveillance video that, all those years ago, seemed to show a grainy, out-of-focus Pablo Ibar at the murder scene. In early January, Ray Evans takes the stand. He's a facial recognition expert from the United Kingdom, hired by Ibar's defense team to examine images made from the video. Evans tells jurors that a careful comparison of Pablo's features to the man seen on the images proved conclusively, in his opinion, that they were not the same person. Prosecutors for the state of Florida emphasized that the facial recognition expert was offering his opinion, And it was, they say, a personal opinion rather than a professional one. The state even counters with its own expert who concludes that it's impossible to be sure whether or not it was Pablo Ibar on the video. In fact, Prosecutor Morton argues, it doesn't matter. After seven weeks of testimony, what really matters is the forensic evidence. Pablo Ibar left his t-shirt behind at the murder scene, Morton says. That's the entire case. Pablo's lawyers repeatedly attack the DNA results, reminding the jury that the evidence could have been contaminated and possibly even manipulated, and they make a more emotional plea. It was, after all, Pablo Ibar who requested the DNA tests on the t-shirt eight years earlier. If he was the killer, why would he want investigators to keep looking at such a significant piece of evidence? Quote, Only an innocent person, someone who knew he had nothing to lose, Would have even considered testing that shirt again, Pablo's lawyer tells the jury. Prosecutor Morton pounces. He reminds the jury that Pablo never asked the lab to test the shirt against his own DNA. It was the state of Florida that made that request. Who was right, and what did it all add up to? That would have to be for the jury to decide. At the end of the day on January 16th, closing statements end. Judge Bailey gives his instructions to the jury and orders them to begin deliberations. Sequestered behind closed doors, they work for an hour before breaking for the night. The real waiting will begin the next day. And for both sides, it's an excruciating
5: day. My name is Tanya Ibar. I have been married to Pablo for 20 years. This is not, it's not easy. I think this is ultimately um, the hardest part of all of this is the waiting now. Um, you know, again, you're, this has been given to 12 people, and now you have to wait for them to make a decision, and that is just very unsettling.
0: Tanya was Pablo's girlfriend at the time of the murder and has steadfastly supported his
5: innocence. It's obviously been very difficult. Um, not anything that I obviously, when I thought about having my future and you know when you're kidding you think about you know oh i'm going to be married to this person and you know we're going to have this obviously this was not in my plan of books um but it this has been very difficult um but aside from that i've had obviously a lot of support um and i think just in general and myself i tried to remain very positive and um tried to stay very strong so you know, my life has definitely been far from easy. If anything, it's it. this situation is just a very difficult situation. There's so much that, you know, you miss out on. There's so much that, you know, the, the average of what people are doing on the weekends and, you know, enjoying family or going on vacations and, and things like that, that you do with your spouse. Obviously, I, I don't do those things, you know. I've done a lot of going to the prison, visiting at prison, um, which is not the way you really want to spend your weekend.
0: Seth Penalver knows what it's like to wait for a jury. He's done it three times before in the Casey's Nickelodeon murder case.
3: It's gut-wrenching. You can't eat. It's hard to sleep even though you don't get much sleep. Um, you, it's just... You know you try to think positive but it's you know you you don't know which way you'll never know which way a jury's speaking i went through three jury trials and when you think you know you're it's totally opposite so i kind of gave up on trying to think where the jury is and you know you look at it being an innocent person and having been convicted before and knowing where he's at sitting there you know being an innocent man uh i understand what he's feeling what he's going through like am i going to go back through it I, you know you know you look at the numbers i was 21 and, I mean, he's probably 45, 46 also, and uh, it took him from 2006 until, what, 2019? That's 13, what, almost 13 years uh, to get another shot. So it's like, you know, you don't got too many more left in you when you're at 45. You know, the pellet process is long, drawn out, uh, so you, you want to go home. It, it, it hurts your, you know, anxiety, everything.
0: The anxieties were being felt on both sides. Deb Bowie says sitting and waiting for a jury is breathtaking.
3: You never know what a jury is
4: going to decide. And gosh, there have been, I don't know, five, six, seven trials, and every one of them has been different. So you never know, right? You you sort of, you sit and you pray and you hope, because um, if you've been in this case for as long as I have, There are things that I have learned that the jury has never been told. And that's frustrating. But it is challenging when you're the family member and you have been sitting in court and listening to testimony outside the presence of the jury to know that the jury will not know some of those things.
0: Early in its deliberations, the jury asks to hear the DNA testimony again. It takes the entire morning of Friday, January 18th. As the waiting resumes, Theories abound. What was the jury listening for? Pablo's brother, Michael Ibar, wonders. Were they trying to convince a holdout to convict or to acquit? What were they discussing in the deliberations room? At 6 p.m. Friday, the jury sends a note to the judge. They're done for the day. They want to return to the hotel where they have been sequestered since deliberations began. It could mean that they reached a decision and want to sleep on it. It could mean they're split and tired of arguing. It could mean anything. Deliberations resume Saturday morning, but not for long. Less than an hour into the day, the jury sends a note to the judge. They have reached a verdict.
1: All right, the verdicts are in legal order. Verdicts read as follows. In the Circuit Court of the 17th Judicial Circuit, in and for grower county, Florida, case number 94, one three zero six two CF ten B Judge Dennis D Bailey, State of Florida, Plaintiff versus Pablo Manuel Ebar, Defendant, Murder Count One. We the jury finds as follows: As to Count One in the charging document, the defendant is guilty of murder in the first degree as charged in the charging document. So say we all. This nineteenth day of January two thousand nineteen, at Fort Lauderdale Broward County, Florida. Signed by the four persons. As to count two, we the jury finds as follows: As to count two, alleged in the charging document, the defendant is guilty of murder in the first degree as charged in the charging document. So say we all. This 19th day of January, 2019, at Fort Lauderdale, Brown County, Florida. Signed by the four person. As to count three, we the jury finds as follows: As to count three, alleged in the charging document, the defendant is guilty of murder in the first degree as charged in the charging document. So say we all. This 19th day of January. 2019 at Fort Lardo, County, Florida, signed by the four persons.
0: The jury finds Pablo Ibar guilty on all three counts of murder in the Casey's Nickelodeon case. As he is handcuffed by a deputy, Pablo shakes his head in frustration. Later, one of his attorneys, Benjamin Waxman, expressed his disappointment.
1: Just so disappointed with the verdicts. Um, we've, we've, I thought I talked with my wife all the way here. I thought about all of the different circumstances, and I really, I really thought it was going to go our way. And uh, it's just been this long journey, and you know, I just feel like if, if the journey wasn't to find Pablo not guilty and to finally bring justice to him, then why? Uh, why Why did, Why did? in the order of the world, why Why did we go through all of this?
0: The conviction of Pablo Ibar brings to an end a nearly 25-year-long nightmare for Deb Bowie.
4: It has been really challenging to maintain a sense of sanity and um, a faithful disposition. It's been really challenging to, to have to go through not just the insult of having to repeatedly go through the legal system, but the injury of listening to, to this family lie to an entire country to raise money from their government to tell more lies about someone as though he is some angel that was mistakenly picked off the streets of South Florida. Yes, it's angering. I don't know who in my situation wouldn't be angry.
0: In a matter of weeks, the same jury that convicted Pablo of murdering Sharon Anderson, Marie Rogers, and Butch Casey will have to decide unanimously if he should be put to death for the crime. Deb says she'll be there to tell the jury about the sister she lost.
4: You know, I mean, the best thing I can do is speak from my heart, right? So I don't have a script or something that I'm going to practice, but I'm most likely will write it out so that I can get through it. But, uh, yeah, I think the very least that i do is an opportunity to face him, the murderer, and the jury, because um, he killed my sister, and it destroyed um, so much in my own family, Certainly, my mom's death was hastened by this. She had three forms of primary cancer when she died. Um, The stress is, I can't put into words. So, absolutely, I'm entitled my day in court. There really isn't ever, you know, people, I think, want to package these cases up and say, oh, they finally have closure, or maybe they can have peace, and it's 25 years later. Can you really say that? No, you can't. The only thing you can thankful for is that it seems like it has come to an end and that this individual will never, ever, ever be free on the street again to wreck tragedy and disaster into someone else's life. The only grace that's been through it is that I have um, a beautiful family and kids who give me a reason to every day tell another story about my sister, um, someone who they never met, and to look for ways to enjoy, you know, my, my life, right, to, and sort of a tribute to her and to see my kids um, have, a, have the best quality of life I can provide for them. But, but there's, 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 there's no poetic sort of justice at the end of this for anybody.
0: Felonious Florida will keep following Pablo Ibar's case, including his sentencing next month. Follow us on social media and add your email to our newsletter at feloniousflorida.com to get updates. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Felonious Florida. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and be sure to tell your friends about our show. It's available online at feloniusflorida.com, Apple Podcasts, Wondery.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can read more about the Casey's Nickelodeon murders and the other cases we've covered, including photos and videos, at feloniousflorida.com. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thelonious Florida is produced by the South Florida Sun-Sentinel and Wondery. This episode was reported by Rafael Almeida with previous reporting by Lisa Arthur. And I'm your host and sound designer, Emma-Kate Austin. Our producers are David Schutz and Juan Ortega. Editing by Randy Roguski. Sound direction by Sean Pitts, with additional recordings by Carlene Jean and La Claqueta Pese. The Thelonious Florida team includes Yaron Zhu, Danny Sanchez, and Dana Banker.